Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and I regret to inform you right at the start here that the Weird House Cinema tour bus has broken down in Florida, so we are still stuck in the Sunshine State. That's right. We're continuing our look at Florida movies from the 1970s, movies filmed in Florida and uh, certainly in the case of today's film and also uh, 1972's Frogs, which we covered previously, set in Florida as well. They capture a certain Floridaness, both real and imagined. Uh, and this week, we're going to look at the Florida movie par excellence, 1971's Zat. Uh, you might know it as The Blood Waters of Dr. Z. Some of you might even know it as Hydra. Uh, it basically, as we'll get into, it had a number of, of various releases over the years under different titles. But uh, for the most part, the one that stuck is Zat, Z-A-A-T. This movie has some thematic overlap with other movies that we've looked at, including uh, sort of like Nature Strikes Back movies. Though this is not exactly Nature Strikes Back. This is more of a... Uh, this is more of a sort of cheap body horror mad science movie with some ecological themes to it rather than just like animals attacking for revenge on humankind. Yeah, it's I guess at heart it's a creature feature, but like like a lot of films that you encounter like this, certainly like, like the first big independent efforts from uh, from filmmakers – it it tries to do a lot of things, so it's 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 a creature feature, but it's also like a, a science team uh, adventure. It's also mm -hmm. um, it, you know it, it also tries to be uh, uh, in the heat of the night a little bit. It uh, it also has this nature strikes back element to it. It's also a kind of a, a hippie folk musical, so it <laughs> it it kind of bats itself around a lot. And um, depending on where you are in the film, you might get something that is uh, tonally different uh, from another portion of the film. It also has a little bit of overlap with Boggy Creek 2 and The Legend Continues. We can talk about some of the similarities as we go on, but uh, but I appreciated the, the similar pompous voiceover narration, though in this case it is the voiceover of a, uh, of a crazed, uh, uh, spurned scientist who wants revenge on the world, whereas in Boggy Creek 2 it's just a kind of... Uh, uh, I, I don't know, like the town smart guy who wants to to show off all his knowledge about the river. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, the the voiceover narration in this is um, is sardonic to the max. Like if you took uh, Vincent Price's voice and you reduced it uh, over heat for a little bit until it was it was just extra icky and gooky. Uh, that's what you'd have in the Bloodwaters of Doctor Z. The voiceover narration wears Joker makeup. Yeah. <laughs> Now, um, if, if you mentioned Boggy Creek uh, earlier, and uh, I think this is a, a good point to mention that this film was uh, was riffed in a 1999 episode of Mystery Science Theater 3000 under the title The Bloodwaters of Dr. Z. And if you're like me, that might be where you discovered the film. Um, and it, that's a great MST episode. I don't want to take anything away from that. Uh, but uh, as I would watch and rewatch that episode, I found that like a lot of MST episodes that really called to me. There was something in the underlying film. There was an awkwardness to it, a kind of loneliness to it. And I've also grown to really appreciate the Floridaness of it as well. So for this episode of Weird House Cinema, this was the first time I watched an unriffed version of 
Zat, uh, which uh, rented from Atlanta's Videodrome uh, video rental store. And, uh, and ultimately, I encourage fans of the MST episode to do the same because like a lot of MST films, it was really edited, really cut down for time. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, there's a lot of stuff that you're missing out on, some really um, wonky and at times grotesque uh, details and sometimes just ludicrous um, additions to the film. This is not of the Attack of the Crab Monsters school of of creature feature runtime. You know, it's not your sixty three minute abs. This one, I think, is oh god, it's it's actually getting close to two full hours, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's the it's a hundred minutes long. It's a it's it's plus size this one, um, so you can you have to set aside a little bit of time for it. Um, and again, the pacing is is at times kind of weird, but also hypnotic. <laughs> um, Quaaludic at times. Uh-huh. Now, uh, we mentioned the MST episode, and I think a lot of people did discover it through that. Uh, but the film has uh, a, has had a cult following outside of MST as well, d- despite only having a limited release in Jacksonville, Florida, and New York's 42nd Street back in 1972. <laughs> the... Uh- yeah, the version we watched, it begins with a statement from the director where he's like, people were coming up to me and saying, Don, Don, you've got to release this movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it was it was it was people really wanted some sort of a release for a long time. And, and luckily, uh, in, in recent years, it has been available. Um, but, yeah, this this film, like the scorpion fish uh, and the sargassum fish is uh, it's been patient it knew that it would one day conquer the universe um and and it has its super fans one of which is the atlanta artist and jacksonville native arland who i know we're both uh, fans of have you seen any of arland's zat pieces joe oh i don't know i i've seen a lot of his stuff around town a lot of you know restaurants and coffee shops and stuff mm-hmm. will have arland pieces up on the walls i think some of his work also though i don't quite recall how was featured in some adult swim shows i could be wrong about that uh but no i don't know which the zat ones are i know his i know his piece that's like the divers with the spear guns is that zat related um that one might not be i mean he's uh, he he works florida into a lot of his pieces but uh he did um he did create a number of art pieces that actually feature Zat. He did he did a show as part of a, t- a 2009 screening of the film at the Plaza here in Atlanta. And at least some of the pieces, I assume from that show, were uh, that they, they used to hang out over at Joe's Coffee in East Atlanta. Uh, and I would go there and bring my laptop and work. Uh, and um, I don't know, there may still be some pieces there. I haven't been there in a, in a spell. But, uh, there, you know, images of Zat. And uh, he had some some uh, spinoffs over the years as well. Like there was one that was like a real estate sign that says Zat did it again. Um, <laughs> and then he's, he recently did, did one at least online that was a, a Zatterday uh, thing. It was uh, pretty amusing. Very uh, nice. But, but yeah, he's, a, he's apparently a Zat mega fan and you know, a lot of people like him out there, you know, where you see this maybe when you were younger and something about it, about it sticks in uh, into your brain and you can't quite get it out. All right, what's the elevator pitch on this film? A lonely mad scientist in Florida hatches a plan to raise an army of giant walking catfish and avenge himself over his colleagues and also conquer the planet, perhaps the universe. Uh, And we're left to follow him and see how it works out. Let's hear that trailer audio. And now, coming to this theater, One of the most incredible stories of modern time. Zat. 
Invasion of the Walking Catfish. A crazed scientist, Dr. Leopold, is convinced he can turn humans into fish. He proves it by transforming himself into a horrible, revengeful, killer fish. Zat tells it all. You won't want to miss Zat. Positively no one admitted during the last 15 minutes. Okay, now, you would not have expected a movie like this to have major folk music themes, and I don't know if the trailer audio we just played had the folk music in it. Uh, if not, maybe we should insert a clip right here, just because, like, you've got to have this in your head to understand everything that comes after. Oh, yeah. I mean, we can go straight to the music here, uh, if you like. Uh, this, uh, what we're about to hear is um, is, a, is a bit from a song titled World War II Boy. Uh, which is a very strange, strange title. Uh, but this is from Barry Hodgen and Jamie DeFrates. They were the composers, and this is Jamie DeFrates performing the song. Give us a break. Give us a break. That's just a clip, but this song is performed in its entirety at the top of the film, um, and it's and I I actually love it. I listen to this song quite a bit, especially in the last couple of weeks leading up to this episode, uh, because you can you can find this on Spotify and various other streaming uh, places. If you just look up Zat songs or or Jamie DeFrates, you will find it. Uh, there's a B side, and we'll get to the B side track in a bit. Uh, but these tracks are featured in the film in full, no cuts. Yeah. So it's almost it's almost a rock opera. I mean yeah. not quite. Only only a couple of songs in the movie, but like it has musical numbers. Yeah, and I I have to say uh, I mean we'll get into this a little bit when we start rolling through the plot, but yeah, the music music always elevates the film. If you have quality music, it can really um create dimensions that would not be there otherwise. And I legitimately think that the music in Zad, both the folk music and some of the other music we'll get to, does a great job of that. Like it takes this this sort of awkward, uh, fumbling um, creature feature uh, and and elevates it to, a, to this level where it does legitimately uh, get caught up in your brain. Do you ever hear that story? It was by somebody who worked on uh, Halloween with John Carpenter. It might have been Donald Pleasance who told the story about going to see a preview screening of the movie where the music had not been added in yet uh-huh. and thinking like, oh no, what a disaster. Like, I'm <laughs> so embarrassed. And then seeing another cut later when the music had been finished and added in and suddenly everybody thinks, oh, this is a horror masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it really does. It, 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 uh, it, it can really elevate things to, to new levels. Though shocking that Donald Pleasance would find embarrassment in a film at that stage of his <laughs> career, because it's not like this would have been the first, uh, the, the first bad movie he was in. this come before or after Puma Man? Ooh, uh, I don't recall. Oh, but uh, either, either way, there were definitely some Puma Mans in there uh, before Halloween. All right, well, we'll come back to more about the music in a bit, but let's, uh, 
let's start with uh, the screenwriter or one of the screenwriters and the director, Don Barton, who lived 1930 through 2013. Who, so he was, he was very much alive uh, to see the, the, the renaissance of, Z- of Zat, the, re- the resurgence of Zat. Uh, and in fact, the, the disc that we watched featured uh, introductory commentary by Don Barton, thanking everyone for their uh, support of the creature here. Yeah, yeah, he shows up right at the top of the film, and and I should point out this disc. It like it's one of those that doesn't even have a menu in it. It just mm-hmm. you just put it in, and it just plays. The the only option is play. Um, but it starts with him talking, and he Don Barton says, uh, "In 1971, my film production company in Jacksonville, Florida, decided that the time was right to make a feature film. Uh, meaning this was his first feature film. He'd only done one other movie before this, which we'll talk about in a second, which was a short film. Uh, but he says he sat down with his staff to discuss ideas." Quote, and we decided that our first motion picture should be a creature feature. Uh, so this turned into an idea, I think, talking with some writers and associates of his about a man catfish creature that uh, terrorizes a small town in his quest for revenge. And then Don Barton says that the initial theatrical release was very promising. He doesn't elaborate on what exactly that means. Uh, But he says that due to unspecified mishaps, uh, the film had been unavailable for like 30 years at the time that it was uh, re-released. Though I wonder, I mean, there must have been some way people got it because they must have gotten a tape of it for Mystery Science Theater. I'm, I'm not sure what. Yeah, though there. I think even that there were some issues. If, if I'm to understand correctly, like there was some, there was a situation where a Sci-Fi Channel, I think at the time, aired it, and then Barton's people got in touch with them, and there was some back and forth about like the rights, but it eventually got worked out. Okay, that that, that makes sense. But um, man, when I was watching this preamble by Don Barton at the beginning of the movie, I kept thinking. Who does this guy remind me of? His vo- something about his voice and the way he talks, and then I realized he reminds me of the TV news host Bill Moyers, who used to do <laughs> like I think he worked for uh, he did specials for PBS, and then I think he worked for CBS for a while. Um, but so like I got that feeling like oh no, this is like Bill Moyers introducing a PBS special on Zat that's going <laughs> to feature interviews with Joseph Campbell. <laughs> Yeah, it does have that kind of vibe. Now, uh, yeah, we mentioned Jacksonville already, uh, and we will mention Jacksonville some more. Uh, Barton was Jacksonville-based. He was a producer and director. This was his second and last um, uh, directorial credit following 1969's They're Out to Get You. But he was apparently involved throughout his life in the Florida film industry, having co-founded the Florida Motion Picture and Television Production Association. And he also produced documentaries, training films, TV commercials, etc., and this is actually more the genre that They're Out to Get You was. So They're Out to Get You, I was really looking for an online copy of it, and I couldn't find anything. But uh, but if somebody out there has better sleuthing capabilities, please send this our way. Um, this is not an entertainment film. They're Out to Get You from 1969 is an educational short that I think was supposed to be shown to retail employees. Uh, so it's like one of those, you know, uh, harassment or ethics training video workplace videos they show you on the first day at a new job, mm-hmm. uh, except it is about shoplifting. <laughs> and the plot of it is that there's this young criminal, or at least a, this is the alleged plot. I had to find a summary somebody wrote online. There is a young criminal named Tony Alto who steals cars for a living, and he gets caught and sent to prison. And in prison, his cellmate turns out to be this uh, 
I don't know, the, this, this smooth guy who's going to tell him, no, 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 stealing cars, you're doing it all wrong. Here's what's up, shoplifting. And he explains <laughs> to him why shoplifting is a much better way to, to make a living by stealing. And so as you go through the narrative, I think it shows the tricks that shoplifters could be using in your store or your store or yours. <laughs> so it also sounds like it's just in general a shoplifting training video uh, yes for, for yeah. either side of the equation well it's kind of like how uh dare was supposed to scare kids away from doing drugs but instead it was just kind of like here are all the different kinds of drugs you could do <laughs> all right uh well let's talk very briefly about the additional story credits um ron kivett and arnold stevens and also lee o uh, Lar- uh larue uh, not much to report here <laughs> Though Ron Kivett was apparently an investigator on History Channel's Ancient Aliens at one point. so <laughs> What was he investigating? Uh, aliens, I guess, or pyramids. One of, was, you know, one of the two, probably. Um, but uh, that, that's the main creative force behind the picture that we're going to discuss here at the top. It's time to get into the cast. And the, the film is initially concerned with only one human being and devotes a good 20-something minutes to just him. Uh, yeah. And that is our our signature character, our, our our main character, Dr. Kurt Leopold, played by Marshall Grauer. Now, this is his one and only film role. And for a long time, I assumed that he only did the physical performance, that we're seeing Marshall Grauer and somebody else is providing that just overly sardonic voiceover that we were talking about. That, again, is just like Vincent Price turned up to 11. Uh, Vincent Price without any, uh, you know, uh, uh, humanity left in it at all. The You know, the, the voice of just a, uh, an, an, an overacting demon. Uh, but... He apparently did the narration as well. Um, Leopold, the character, the human character, never speaks on camera. Not once. Not a single time. But we have just this voiceover uh, at length describing what he's planning to do, what he's doing, um, what his his ultimate aspirations are. Uh, It's a lot of fun. But I would say Marshall Grauer... Is, uh, is is just delightful in this film because the voiceover is just uh, it's, it's it's so rich it's just so overdone and then physically he has this weird combo of sinister awkwardness and this kind of outsider sadness uh, which when you throw in the sort of film quality of Zat it, it feels like you're watching a window into someone's personal hell you know. Dr. Leopold is a human with the personality of a car that's having maintenance problems. <laughs> he, he's having trouble accelerating. He's releasing dark, foul-smelling exhaust. Like He, he needs to get his catalytic converter replaced. Uh, but also, the thing that I, I realized about him, that there's a scene early in the film where he's walking along a beach, uh, but he's not dressed for the beach. He's wearing long slacks and a shirt tucked in and mm-hmm. his head's hanging down in this kind of like sad, like puppy dog way, except he's, he's a little, he's more drab than a puppy dog. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, there's the, this acoustic guitar strumming in the background and he's just this beacon of shabbiness in some shots. He's giving off strong Harry Dean Stanton fumes. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a that's a good comparison, that kind of um, drawn, haggard appearance, yeah. But on the other hand, he has a haircut that doesn't quite match, because I don't know how to describe his, his haircut. It's very strange. It's kind of uh, messy and moppy in the front, but also 
uh, to make it weirder. So it's a haircut that I think I've basically only seen on women before. It's the, a cut style that's kind of puffy up in the back and raises up toward the back or the crown hmm. of the head and then goes flat down toward the front. Hmm. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Um, I'm having a hard time picturing his hair in my head. I, all, okay. I, all I picture is that face. And then later that that bod, uh, which we'll get to. Uh, uh, well, anyway, he he's a he's a profound screen presence. IMDb does not list birth and death dates for Grower, but I was looking around and I think uh, I I found him uh, as being listed as buried in a, a, a cemetery in Jacksonville, and he lived 1922 through 1991. And uh, if I have the right guy here, and I'm pretty sure I do. He was he was pretty active in the Jacksonville theater. So uh, and, and I would not be surprised if that's where ultimately a number of these actors come from, actors that in many cases have no other movie credits uh, listed to them. Thinking about this guy being active in Jacksonville theater got me off on a tangent that I actually think about a good bit when we're watching these B movies, especially locally produced movies, uh, mm-hmm. movies that are, you know, n- not a, a product of L.A., but, you know, come out of Florida or somewhere else in the country. Uh, and it got me thinking about how acting talent translates across from stage to screen and, and the disconnect that can occur when somebody spans these two worlds. Uh, because uh, I was thinking about a story where a longtime close friend of mine, he used to do some local theater directing in Tennessee and he was uh, at one point directing – this was years ago, but at one point he was directing an adaptation of a Tennessee Williams play, I think. And he ended up working with this actor who, uh, according to him, was just magical on stage, You know, mm. one of the best actors he had ever worked with and, and was, was spellbinding. But we found out this guy had also been in a few movies, and I don't recall the exact titles, but they were just like Z-grade horror movies, you know, Chupacabra Rampage 9 or something like that. And so we we watched these, and this amazing local theater actor was, you know, just not especially impressive in a direct-to-video horror context. And I remember having a kind of revelation at that point that, like, oh, you know, stage talent and screen talent are not always interchangeable, and context really matters. Like, somebody who can be a very good actor when they've got ma- good material to work with. Like a lot of, a lot of the people who do these Z grade horror movies are probably a lot of times doing Shakespeare or something, you know, Mm -hmm. in local theater or they're, or they're, they're doing Tennessee Williams plays or something like that. But then when you put them in a, in a catfish monster movie, the, whatever talents they've developed for those other uh, acting contexts just don't really translate. Uh, But there's a good chance in any given B movie that there are plenty of members of the cast who are no names in the film world, but they're like the best actor in their local theater group and they're used to doing Shakespeare or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I guess there there are so many different ways you can cut it. I mean, on one hand, it's the difference between the stage uh, and being told by a director, yeah, we're filming this next uh, scene in the basement of uh, this building Um, or, or just walk on the beach for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't know what your motivation is. Just, you know, just just walk on the beach and we'll, we'll, we'll fill you in in a bit. We're still writing that part. You know, so stuff like you, you can imagine the, the distance between the two projects on top of just how, you know, colossal an undertaking uh, any level of film is not to take anything away from a stage production, which, of course, is also a, a colossal undertaking in, in so many regards. But mm-hmm. um, but, but but yeah, yeah, the, the, the tools that that aid you 
in one dimension uh, might not aid you as well without some uh, uh, re-tinkering in the other. Yeah, certainly true. But I mean, just I I think it's important that people should always keep in mind, if you are a fan of Z-grade horror movies and and, and the kind of stuff we talk about on the show, you should always remember that whenever you're watching one of these films, there's a good chance that the actor who is completely failing in front of you right now is actually great in some other context. Yeah. Now, um, Leopold will eventually turn into a monster, and we'll detail that at length. Uh, but when he is a monster, he is played by someone uh, else. Uh, the monster is played by Wade Popwell, who lived 1948 through 2006. This was his only film role, and he apparently answered a newspaper call for tall actors who were also experienced scuba divers. Oh, yeah. This was a funny thing I read as one of the uh, the many trivia facts claimed about this movie. I, I guess I'll cite several of these throughout the episode. There are a number of interesting facts that are claimed on the IMDb page for this uh, uh, for this movie that are unsourced, so I can't verify them. But at least the claim is that uh, he was recruited through a newspaper ad, like you say, mm-hmm. that was basically like, we need a really tall person who's going to play a monster, and they got like tons of responses. Like, <laughs> people were, were, Florida was into this. <laughs> All right, the next uh, acting credit to highlight here, uh, Gerald Cruz played marine biologist Rex. He doesn't have a last name, as far as I know. Um, this was his only film role, which ultimately surprised me because I thought he had a nice screen presence in this uh, as the um, the African-American marine biologist who is the first to realize that something is wrong. Yeah, this movie does something that a lot of these uh, creature feature or nature strikes back type movies do, which is th- there's somebody who's like the voice of reason, you know, the, the cooler head who's putting together the evidence while everybody else around them is just sort of like reacting erratically and emotionally. And he plays the cool head in this movie. Like he's some he's the person who's out there saying like, oh, there's pollution in the water. And oh, here's this report of a catfish. And this wound on the victim looks like a giant catfish claw mark. I think he at one point. <laughs> Concludes. I'm not sure uh, that really lines up with reality, but like that's the role he plays in the movie. And he's set opposite, uh, for example, this sort of like redneck sheriff who's always got a piece of straw hanging out of his mouth or yep. I guess a piece of hay. And he's always like, well, I don't believe in monsters. Yep. Yep. And that is Sheriff Lou Krantz, played by Paul Galloway, who lived 1923 through 2015. Um, uh, like everybody in this, wasn't in a tremendous uh, much else. But he played Garage Man, uh, which I assume is a bit part in the in J.D.'s Revenge from 1976, a New Orleans crime drama starring Glenn Turman and Louis Gossett Jr. Um, in this film, however, yeah, he plays the small town sheriff who uh, is hmm, lazy um, <laughs> and largely incompetent. Yeah. Uh, but in the later portions of the film shows a little bit of hustle, but not quite enough. He's one of those characters who is uh, not the antagonist of the film. He's not a bad guy, but he's just sort of a he's a roadblock. He's just yeah. sort of getting in the way of what what needs to happen happening. Yeah. Now, another thing I should point out is that this is one of those movies where you see a few repeats during the credits. Uh, mm-hmm. For example, Paul Galloway here, who plays the sheriff, uh, he was in the cast, but he was also a unit manager. And then I saw in the credits that Ron Kivett, who was one of the writers of the film, was also the technical director and did some of the costuming. And I think there were a few others like this. So it's not all the way to Neil Breen or, or Coleman Francis tier, where the director is also getting credits for catering and a 
invent security and stuff, <laughs> but the but there is some some repetition going on. All right, uh, a couple of other actors uh, that we'll mention. Uh, Santa Ringhaver plays uh, Agent Martha Walsh. Dave Dickerson plays Agent Walker Stevens. Both of these uh, actors, these were their only film roles. But these two, we'll come back to them. There are Mulder and Scully and that. They, uh, they work for a shadowy organization known as Inpit. Yeah, they get called in by uh, Rex, the marine biologist. Uh, I could not have told you these characters' names. They, for me, they were just in, Inpit Agent 1 and Inpit Agent 2. Yeah. <laughs> now, another character that the character's barely worth mentioning. There's a deputy sheriff in this, but it's played by an actor by the name of Rich Valerie, who lived 52 through 2018, was only in eight films, but they included small roles in Jaws 3, <gasps> The Road to Wellville, and Night of the Hunter. Well, he was in Night of the Hunter? Wait, no, he would well, have had to not, be very not young. Not that Night of the Hunter, Joe. Uh, oh, the 1991 okay. made-for-TV Night of the Hunter starring Richard Chamberlain and featuring Burgess Meredith and Ray McKinnon in a small role. Uh, okay, that would make sense. Now, for yeah. him to have been in the original Night of the Hunter, he would have to have been, uh, I guess, three years old uh, when, <laughs> when he starred in it. Uh, the original Night of the Hunter is a, is a scary movie. Man, talk about spellbinding actors. That That is one of the all-time greats for me in terms of a, a, a screen presence that you cannot take your eyes off of. Robert Mitchum in that movie is scary as hell. Yeah. But what if we remade it in the early 90s with Richard Chamberlain in the role? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Supposedly awful. Um, <laughs> okay. Now, uh, that's enough with the cast. That's enough with the humans uh, and the monsters. Uh, we, we need to talk just a little bit about the music. And then the next few people of note are responsible for the music of Zad. And the music of Zad is, is pretty great, even if it's a bit all over the place as well, which is kind of suitable. Uh, it encompasses... More traditional late 60s, early 70s film score work, um, which some of that, I suspect, uh, is, um, is stock music. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but then it also has um, uh, 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 like folk rock. It has ambient synth in there. Um, yeah, so there's some uncredited stock music in there per IMDb by Trevor Duncan. So um, it's kind of all over the place, but there's some, some really interesting stuff in there. I was not really won over by the electronic music in this one, which mostly just took the form of like kind of painful high pitch noises and screeching. Oh, really? Uh, I, I ultimately really like that. Or at least that. that's um, what I recall. Yeah. Um, well, it is like that. It is kind of noisy at times. It kind of gets into that Dr. X territory where, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we discussed in that film, there are these 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 scenes that have ambient mad science noises in the background. It oh, yeah. sounds a lot like... It is uh, some manner of like modern post-industrial electronic score. Mm-hmm. And so that definitely has that vibe going on. Um, but but I actually really liked it. It's, um, in my opinion, I, I thought it was pretty effective. It was synthy, kind of noise, ambient. And the electronic music like this in the film, and I suspect some of the, the background electronic weirdness, is the work of Jack Tamil, a, a Floridian synth musician. And... Um, if if you uh, look him up on Spotify and other digital platforms like that, you'll find some rather haunting nature ambient recordings that he's done, such as uh, Voices of the Everglades of Everglades State Park and Gator Bellows in the Everglades, Ooh. both uh, collaborations with James T. Miller. Okay. 
But he also put out some excellent space music in the 1980s and 90s, including The Referee Has Vanished from 1986, Meditative Massage from 1992, Synthiest, I think it is, from 1982. Oh, that's a religious affiliation, obviously. (laughs) I am a Synthiest. And then there's a 1980 album he put out titled Electroacoustic, like electro slash acoustic, which was released on Spectrum Records. Um, I can't, I couldn't find any of these available on, in the normal places online, but I did find a YouTube upload that consists of electroacoustic, the referee has vanished, and sounds from uh, from from Zat's audio. Uh, and you can also, it looks like you can still pick up electroacoustic used on vinyl. Um, I was listening to it; it's uh, it's it's pretty good. I I enjoyed it. Um, okay. Also, not surprising, the number one YouTube comment on that uh, on that uh, uh, track that I mentioned, it's our land chiming in and saying, oh, "Yeah, thank funny. you for uploading this." <laughs> um, Commenting with his real name. Yeah. If you know, another Jack Tamil uh, track if, uh, that you can look up. Um, on Bandcamp, uh, there's a comp uh, titled Escape from the Cage, Volume 2, Into the Underworld, originally released by Oracle Music in 1990. Uh, if, if you look that up, uh, he has a track on there. It's called Ember Days, and uh, I, I thought it was rather nice. Hmm. Anyway, that's Jack Tamil. That's the the electro, uh, uh, you know, synth noise uh, background that you'll hear. But again, uh, the the folk music that comes to us from Barry Hodgen and and uh, Jamie DeFreitz, um, and and th- their story is kind of interesting as well. According to uh, to the blog Bill Ectric's Place, Bill is an uh, Ocala based writer and blogger in Florida. Uh, DeFreitz lived in Jacksonville at the time, and he was a traveling musician, uh, having a, a supposedly open for the likes of Willie Nelson, uh, Janice Ian, uh, uh, Little River Band, uh, you know, et cetera, various people that were making the rounds in those days. And he ran a recording studio in Jacksonville and is still active. Um, I I, I looked him up. He has or had a website. Uh, Some of these guys, their websites kind of come in and out. But, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, Jamie DeFreitz, you can look him up on on, uh, Spotify and you can find the music from Zat. It's It's pretty nice. Interesting. Well, Rob, I, I regret having uh, having yucked your, uh, your 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 delicious synth music, and maybe I should give it another shot. I, I just recall when I was watching it, there was frequently like a, a just a high pitch noise that was starting to kind of make me feel a little woozy. <laughs> Uh, well, I, but, but then again, you have to remember, like, that's kind of what the music is supposed to do in a film like this. It's to, okay. to build that sense of unease and uh, and alienation and uh, Floridian weirdness. Well, I'm there. Seth, give us just a little taste of some of that Jack Tamil music before we move on to the plot. All right, Joe, let's get into the plot of this baby. Yes, let us tell the story of uh, of a man who dreamed he was a catfish, or was he a catfish dreaming he was a man? A true tale of metamorphosis, of mythic proportions. Absolutely. So, 
the movie starts, uh, of course, the version we watched has that, that great intro from Don Barton again with the, the Bill Moyers uh, energy for me. But uh, then it gets right into the film with stock footage. I, I doubt this was shot for the film. It was. It looks like something from a nature documentary where it's yeah. showing off uh, sargassum seaweed, as we have just discussed on the core episode from yesterday, and uh, and uh, and a real nice prickly looking fish. And we and we get voiceover that at first I thought was a poem. It really sounded like he was reciting a poem because he says sargassum, the weed of deceit. Sargassum fish, mighty hunter of the deep. Okay, so that's almost like a close, a near mm-hmm. rhyme there. So you think he's developing a poem, but then the stuff he starts saying after that doesn't really fit. He starts saying, What an inspiration you have been in my plot. Your life of hiding, waiting, stalking your prey at just the right moment. Attack! I love you. <laughs> what are you, the poetry police, Joe? You're saying this isn't poetry? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, what I was trying to figure out was whether the movie thought it was a poem or whether oh, he was just talking. I'm, I mean, yeah, anything, anything's a poem if you say it is. <laughs> now, it is, it, it is such a, a startling start to this picture because, again, it's, it's clearly stock footage and the, the, the voiceover is just amazing. And I do love the idea of somebody on um, early 1970s, 42nd Street in New York City walking into this picture, um, you know, thinking they're getting some sort of a sleazy monster movie. Movie, and they're hit with documentary footage yeah. <laughs> right off the bat. And just uh, the guy who sounds kind of like Vincent Price telling this fish that he loves it. Yes. <laughs> I love you. And then he goes on to admire various other species for minutes at a time. You know, yeah. uh, the shark. I admire you. Soon I'll swim with you. They'll be afraid. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, very good. And the scorpion fish. And, and objectively... Uh, ugly, beautiful fish, like a fish that is beautiful in how ugly it is. And he's mm-hmm. like, you are gorgeous. They think <laughs> I'm insane. They are the ones who are insane. Yeah, it's it's pretty tremendous. Another thing that's cool, though, is that actually the stock footage they select, I don't know what it's originally from, but whatever nature documentary it is, they got some cool footage because uh, monster science moment here, they, they catch a sargassum fish eating another fish whole, like just spreading its mouth wide and and clamping down over this fish's body. And the fish that it eats is almost as big as the sargassum fish itself. This reminds me that in the actual science episode we recorded yesterday about this organism, I neglected to mention that uh, apparently sometimes when it eats uh, another fish, uh, since you can actually see the prey inside of it through its semi-translucent skin. Oh it's yeah, so, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. So that's so wonderful. I love it. I don't want to be it like uh like Dr. Leopold here, but uh but I do like it a lot. Oh, we, I don't know if we mentioned. That's how he follows up. So he's looking at the sargassum fish and he's saying, "I love you." But then he says, "I hope I'll be a good imitator." Yes. Um, basically, he's, he, he begins to lay this out through, you know, ultimately like 20 minutes of, of narration uh, mm-hmm. that, that he is going to draw inspiration, uh, perhaps behavioral, but also genetic uh, inspiration from these organisms as part of his master plan. I think you already mentioned this, but we should stress it's like 23 minutes into this movie before you see a human being who is not a mad scientist. Right. right. Up until <laughs> up until then, it is exclusively 
uh, Dr. Leopold looking like Harry Dean Stanton shuffling around on the beach and through the ruins of a marine park and uh, and like stock footage of animals from the sea and then a monster just sort of rambling around. Yeah, most films, you know, they'd probably start off with like a teenage couple meeting. They're relatable and then they're killed by a monster or something like that. Not this film. No, it's just it's Dr. Leopold and stock footage of fish uh, from the get go. We do get a, a teenage couple fooling around later in the movie when the monster is on a rampage. There's this uh, this young couple that are like on a porch swing and they're mm-hmm. making out and the guy's like, ah, I don't believe in monsters. And then, yeah, of course, a, a good hour and a half times. into the picture, you get, you yeah. get what is probably an opening uh, segment in most films. Yeah. Um, but yeah, how, how to describe that there is there is a, a powerful emotional resonance to the opening of this film when you first see Dr. Leopold wandering around. I mean, I guess we've already tried to describe it nine different ways. But yeah, it's it's Harry Dean Stanton ish. It's it's shabby. It's drab. It's sad. It's lonely. He is failing and and he is going to do science to fix it. <laughs> Oh, and of course, we should mention that while we see him wandering on the beach, this is when the World War II boy song is playing. And one of the lines in the song is just a kiss on the top of the head from the sun god. It's the part where he says, sashay, sashay through the sargasm. Yes. <laughs> the I, I could go on and on about just how wonderful that song is because the lyrics I, I, at once, the lyrics sound like lyrics that were composed after half watching part of the film, you know? Just sort of like trying to loosely figure out what the plot is, like it refers to your um, your calendar research, uh, which just seems like a strange description uh-huh. of what appears to be going on in the in the motion picture. But also, it ultimately, like I don't know, it ends up giving Leopold more depth because he's talking about um, uh, you know you know about you know how he's wanting to change himself. Um, uh, outside, you change yourself to be inside what you already see. You know, which I guess is kind of like you know. <laughs> Which is you know, a catfish. Yeah, he's already a giant catfish. I don't know. It like it, it ends up working for some weird reason. It, it just works very well. The true catfish was inside you all along. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, so I've got a question about how a, a filming location here matches up with reality. I don't know if you have any insight on this, but I'm wondering. So after we see Harry Dean Stanton here wandering through this desolate beach landscape while the World War II boy plays – he wanders into a place that looks to me like the ruins of an off-brand sea world. Like if a, if a marine world type attraction was abandoned for years and just, you know, things collected all over it as, as the seasons came and went, that's what we'd be seeing that he walks through. I know that part of this movie was filmed at Marine Land of Florida, but from mm-hmm. what I can tell, I think it was actually in operation at this time, not like an abandoned ruin. So I'm not sure exactly what we're seeing. Yeah, like there's a scene where he's walking around or through what looks like um, what's previously a tank of some sort. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now it's just empty and has leaves and, and clutter in it. Um, I, I guess my thinking is, is twofold on this. First of all... Um, just because Marine World was up and running didn't mean there were parts of it that maybe had fallen into disuse or weren't being used, you know, the hmm. outskirts of the facility, that sort of thing. Um, like, I think if you go to any any place, you go to your local zoo or botanical garden, there's going to be a part of the property where you could probably film a scene for a monster movie, you know? Yeah. Um, 
On the yeah, other it, hand, it could just be off season. I mean, maybe it looks that bad just in that's, winter. That's well. That's the other thing. Like we have to remember that Florida is Florida, and it is a jungle. So um, you know, the, we're, we're we're talking about just like a few months without anybody paying attention to the maintenance of a place, and it'll look like absolute ruin. You know, mm-hmm. um, which I think is one of the appeals of um, of certain Florida movies as well. The Florida ruins. Yeah, okay. Uh, so I, I'm going to guess that this is actually part of Marineland, Florida, um, which which is a place that is operated off and on, and I think was also a filming location for Revenge of the Creature, a a, a very strange, uh, a very strange Florida movie indeed. Yeah, probably the best uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon movie, if one can can say such a thing about Creature from the Black Lagoon. It's the sequel to Creature from the Black Lagoon, and I think it's the one where the creators have realized that, like, oh, in the original Creature, uh, the humans were definitely the bad guys, right? Like, the creature didn't do anything. It was just living in its own place, and then humans showed up, and they were like, let's shoot at it. And we're supposed to think that the humans are good for just going to a place where a monster lives and and killing it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the creature was the character that we we all uh, uh, relate to and associate with. And, and I think a certain th- similar thing is going on in this film as well. I mean, the creature from the black lagoon or Zat, they are both literally fish out of water. You know, they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're literally outsiders. And, you know, that's, that's the sort of thing you often uh, um, relate to in a film like this. Mm-hmm. Though I will say, I will make a strong distinction, which is that I fully side with the creature because he's just hanging out in his place and they come there and start attacking him. Right. Zat is the aggressor. Zat Zat is is trying to work out uh, scores in a way that is not productive. He could have, like, if he was mad at his former coworkers, he could have written them a letter saying, like, here's what I think are our unresolved issues. Instead, he's like, no, I'll turn myself into a catfish critter and, and come to your house and kill you. Right. He's very clear on this. It's not just, I want to restore ecological balance. No, no. He wants to basically all but wipe out the human race, um, hunt the remaining humans for sport, and proclaim himself ruler of not merely the earth, but the universe. Uh, So he has some grandiose plans here. Dr. Leopold, you you are asking for more than is your due. Yes. Uh, but of course, so, so we see Dr. Leopold still in human form at the beginning. He goes back to his lab, which I think are probably some some places at Marineland of Florida. I'm not sure. But they, they're places with like hoses attached to the ceiling and stuff like that. It, it kind of equipment that you would imagine might be in an actual marine biology lab or, an, I don't know, an a- animal marine veterinary clinic or something. Yeah, uh, and I think they cobble together a lot of stuff too. Um, mm-hmm. you know, like there's a black light, some black light stuff back there. Uh, not black light, dark room um, equipment mm-hmm. in the back at, at one point. You know, so clearly, you know, they they took some ad- initial clutter, they filled it up with some other technological stuff, but it ends up looking looking good. I felt like it. It. I feel like this is a an adequately lonesome and mad sciencey layer. Yes, it is. It is very dingy. It is very damp. It is very dank. It is a. It doesn't look like a place you'd want to sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, we get some classic mad scientist dialogue while he's fiddling around with his equipment. He he says uh, the formula they all laughed at. My little Jim Zat, and we find out that Zat is a. It's like a formula. It's like Z sub A A mm. sub T. I think. Yes. Yeah, I believe so. Okay, so it's like a it's a, it's a mathematical or chemical formula of some kind. 
Um, but he, he tells the, uh, through the voiceover, he says it's very powerful. Uh, they'll have fish the size they've never seen before walking fish who like human flesh. Okay. <laughs> uh, so he wanders around the labs a lot. He stops to tickle an octopus, which I liked. He just reaches into the tank and kind of like touches it a little bit. Um, and then he starts doing voiceover about this one species of catfish, the walking catfish, which according to uh, – this is another one of those claims that was listed on IMDb unsourced. But according to the, the claims of uh, the uh, Kivit, one of the writers, uh, he got the idea for this movie by reading an article about this species of catfish, the so-called walking catfish or Clarius batrachus. Uh, but anyway, th- this voiceover about the catfish – I. I wondered if this was actually written for the film because it sounds like he is reading from an encyclopedia or a field guide entry. Uh, and I was wondering if somebody could find the text, but I was Googling sections of what he says in quotes and I came up with nothing. But uh, I wonder, maybe I'm just not looking for it quite the right way. Uh, but then he goes on a, a rant about how there's a problem with the walking catfish, which is that it is too small. And he tells it that you are not ready to battle humans. Uh, but then he says, soon the whole world will know and respect us. Uh, and I, so I'm a little confused about his plan because he's he's going on about how all the humans will be killed. But then he also says that they will finally respect him. So I don't know. It, maybe it's that they'll respect him before they are killed. Um, yeah, I guess at the very least. But also, you know, he does allude to the fact later on that some humans will be alive, possibly. Uh, so yeah. maybe those are the ones who will respect him. All right. Well, no more screwing around. It's just time to inject myself with a giant needle. And that's what he does. He mm-hmm. he grabs this needle that is huge. It's like a, you know, it's like a, a feather duster size handle, you know, so it looks like it was designed for saltwater crocodiles and it's full of some kind of green Gatorade looking liquid. And he just jams it straight into his arm. But that's just phase one of the transformation. First is oh, the injection. Right. Yeah. Next comes the um, kind of a baptism. Yeah, yeah, he's got to get into a tank. So he gets undressed. He's wearing these huge blue boxer shorts with his butt kind of hanging out, and that's funny. And then there's this pool of water, and uh, I think there are, there is some blood mixed in with the water, and then there are these Geiger counter sound effects in the background. So I think suppo- something is supposed to be radioactive. The, this pool of water may be it, – it could be that it's supposed to be heavy water because later on mm. uh, some characters talk about how his laboratory – Dr. Leopold's laboratory used to do heavy water experiments. Ties right into previous episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Yeah, I mean as we discussed in that episode, as soon as you get into a pool of heavy water, you turn into a catfish creature. So <laughs> the, the science checks out. <laughs> Uh, but then he he gets himself into this kind of winch gurney thing. I don't know how best to explain this. It's like it looks like a device that would be used for airlifting comatose dolphins. Yeah, yeah. It's fittingly awkward and ritualistic. It's um it's an unsettling scene because uh, mm-hmm. he doesn't just climb in. Yeah, he lowers himself into it on this thing. Yeah, uh, so he gets in the the gurney, he lowers himself into the water with a rope, and then we get electronic beeps and Geiger counter clicks, and then finally he emerges and he is the creature. Uh, and then we will never want, we will never again the rest of the movie see the actor who plays Leopold. He's just gone. That's right. All we have is this this fabulous monster. So it's not like a where catfish movie where he's changing back and forth. He's just he's just this creature permanently. 
Yeah. And I think this is one of the things I always that always captured my imagination imagination about the film is that instantly we look at this and we're like, oh, sweetie, you have you have really done it now. Um, This is this is not good. Um, But but he has different thoughts about it. Oh, yeah. So as soon as he gets out of the water, he looks at himself in a mirror and he you think for a second he's upset. But but no, he turns it around. He says nothing at all like a catfish, but it's beautiful. (laughs) And what is he talking about? Well, I would say that he looks like a cross between Greedo and Alf, uh, except he's got a a sort of like dirtier texture than either one of them. So it's like if you cross Greedo and Alf, but then have that creature fall into a puddle of mud and dead leaves that get stuck to him. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then he's also got green fur around certain parts of his upper body. I think it's the parts where the sort of shirt part of his suit comes together because it's, it's similar to the white fluffy parts of a Santa suit. Yeah. He looks a little bit like the Grinch at times, you know, yes. and he has kind of like Grinch physique. Yes, he does. That That's a very good comparison. I didn't think of that. Some parts of his body have a kind of Peter Pan garment shingled leaf texture, or maybe the mm-hmm. Green Giant has some clothes that look like this, uh, the shins in particular. Uh, but also he has a snout that ends in a leech mouth. Uh, well, it's kind of like a leech mouth. It's like a red circle with with teeth in the middle, but they're not those uh, circular uh, leech-like teeth. They're more just kind of like a dog's teeth with canines. It is not even remotely articulated, though. Like, <laughs> no, no, no. The painted on teeth, basically. Yep. And according to the writer Ron Kivett, this is another one of those uh, IMDb trivias, uh, the monster has this mouth that looks kind of like a leech's mouth because in an earlier version of the script, he was supposed to suck blood out of his victim. Mm. So he was going to be a a vampire catfish monster. But I think they they scrapped the sucking blood, but the costume was already made, I suppose. (laughs) Okay, so he's transformed. And then we get to a part that I legitimate laugh out loud part of the movie which is when he goes to his big to-do list on the wall. Mm-hmm. He's got this wall that uh, how did it's like this giant disc-shaped wall calendar that he's got his upcoming tasks written on and we see him go up to the cell on this calendar labeled self-transformation and he crosses it off like oh there's one thing <laughs> off my to-do list and then the next item on the list is another instance of the word transformation but it is next to a drawing of the outline of the state of Florida and this this drawing is labeled FLA period uh, which is which is the correct AP styling of uh, abbreviation of Florida which makes me think we may have a journalist decorating this set um <laughs> Because I, I don't know if you remember, I mean, the, we, we used to have to know AP style when we were writing for How Stuff Works. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. still, I mean, it, it's hard to shake. Yeah. Everybody just uses the postal abbreviations now. Or maybe they didn't have the postal abbreviations in 1971. I, I don't actually know. Hmm. Well, at any rate, this is the calendar research that um, Jamie DeFreitz was referring to. Yes. And uh, I don't know, Joe, I think this is just how you had to do things before modern project management software right. uh, helped you keep track. You just had to have a giant uh, circular uh calendar chart on the on the wall taking up enormous real estate in your mad science layer 
Yeah, and you had to draw pictures of the state that you're going to transform. So he, mm-hmm. has, he draws Florida. Transformation, I guess, of Florida. Uh, another hilarious thing about this is that next to the drawing of Florida, there's a label of the ocean, and it's just labeled Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, who was going to be confused? Wasn't he just making this for himself? Um, well, m- maybe he wasn't sure, you know, after the transformation, you know, his brain might be a little foggy. He'd need ah, lots of visual cl- cl- that, cl- that's cues. That's a good there. point. Yeah, like he couldn't predict his future mental state. So he's like, maybe I will be confused and I will need to relearn geography. <laughs> At any rate, it looks it looks weird. And um, and I like it. I actually made a, ca- um, a Christmas tree ornament based on it at one point. Oh, that's good. Uh, so the Le- the Leopold catfish monster goes out on the town. He goes out equipped with a spray bottle and just starts spraying nature, I think, with the Zat formula. So uh-huh. he sprays snakes and frogs, and he sprays reeds at the water's edge. He goes swimming and then uses the spray bottle underwater to spray an octopus and a crab. You see him literally with the spray bottle, like, under the water, just squeezing it and... Now, yeah, so we have some some underwater photography going on uh, in this sequence and then in some sequences to come. And I don't know if you noticed, Joe, but we have some very clear underwater sequences here. And uh, I believe that's because they were filming in uh, the various springs of Florida, uh, which uh, which even today, uh, they're not as clear as they used to be uh, due to environmental reasons and runoff and so forth, um, which is, uh, you know, depressing but uh but but even now the very clear waters and back in 71 yeah perfect place to shoot your monster movie even if you were doing so on a budget oh okay yeah i I should have noticed that they really did not look like the uh, cloudy stagnant pond water i would imagine in in most of north florida yeah So, yeah, we are 23 minutes into the film before we finally introduce non-Leopold humans and actual dialogue. One human character talking to another human character. Unbelievable. So here we introduce the sheriff and Rex, the marine biologist. And if it's not clear at this point, it becomes clear that they were sort of going for uh, in the heat of the night thing here. Uh, this is you know, based on a novel, 1967 movie directed by Norman Jewison. They saw a small town southern sheriff played by Rod Steiger teaming up with an African-American homicide detective from up north played by Sidney Poitier. And um, yeah, that is nowhere near in the heat <laughs> of the night in terms of serious drama and cultural commentary. But it seems to be like that's what they were going for here. Uh, they were they were they were thinking, hey, what if it was like in the heat of the night, except there was also a giant catfish? Yeah, this is something we've seen in in a number of these other like uh, ecological monster movies from the 70s. They also seem to try to inject some social commentary in there. It's often kind of light and not super deep. But yeah, I think that is probably what they're attempting. Is is uh, Rex the marine biologist also supposed to be from out of town? I don't recall if if that was the case, but um, it, I don't remember if it's expressly stated, but it, 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 it feels implied that he's, he's not from around here. Yeah. 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 And the, so there's a general suggestion that there's this, this rigid uh, parochial local white conservative infrastructure that does not process the introduction of knowledge about pollution causing monster attacks. Uh, being, uh, it, it does not uh, incorporate that information well, and it sort of requires the expertise of somebody who provides a, a, a different perspective. And so it's got, in this case, a, an African-American scientist who m- may or may not be from out of town, but at least is reacted to that way. Mm-hmm. 
And of course, as we said earlier, the uh, the redneck sheriff in this is literally chewing on a on a haystalk when we first meet yeah. him, and generally seems to be derisive of the concept of science and expertise. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's kind of a he's kind of a a, a Floridian Wiggum uh, from The Simpsons. Yeah, yeah. In fact, the sheriff. There are a lot of people in this movie that the sheriff shows. Um, he does not respect, uh, and that includes hippies, uh, the press. At one point, we have a reporter who's trying to cover the issue, but the sheriff's just like, somebody ought to smash you flat. <laughs> and then, of course, he's not fond of out-of-towners, scientists. Uh, he, 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 I think he, he represents um, Southern cultural rigidity. Hmm. But that's enough human stuff. Then we come back to Leopold once more. That's right. Leopold, he comes back to the lab after he's uh, been out there spraying stuff, and he he goes up to a- another thing on his big wall calendar, uh, and he, he says, Matson, your days are numbered. Again, I think this is voiceover, and we have no idea who Matson is, but I think th- the point is he's got a grudge against some scientist who he worked with who told him that his theories were too extreme. Uh, I think this other scientist told him he was taking it too personal, and he didn't mm-hmm. like that, so he's going to get his revenge. Yeah, and this is where you begin to – I mean, it's it's already been an awkward transformation. We've watched him move around. Zat the monster – I mean, his name's not Zat. Sometimes I think of him as Zat, though, again, Zat refers to the chemical, not the monster. The monster's just Leopold, yeah. the giant fish. Uh, but he moves around so awkwardly. Uh, certainly on land, it's really hard for me to buy that this is better than your human form. And in the water, okay, I guess he's marginally better in the water than a human would be, but um, it's already seeming to go in kind of rocky. And then he's like, you know what? I Also, revenge is part of my plan. And then yeah. it's like, so he's not only going to attempt to unbalance the ecosystem and bring upon a new age of fish, uh, he also has some petty revenge agendas in there. He also needs to commit murder crimes. Oh, he's got several. He gets sidetracked on a lot of stuff. So, yeah, he's yeah. got revenge murders. And then at some and some point later on, I think he becomes lonely and he wants a, he wants a fish wife. Yeah, he he goes the the classic uh, Frankenstein's monster route. And, yeah, he wants a companion. And right. so that's additional. You know, it's just the budget on this plan is just getting blown out of proportion. Right. He, he decides he needs to uh, at the last minute add in a bride of catfish uh, action item. And that that's how things really go off the rails. Um, but in, so at first we just see him creeping around on various people. He creeps on Rex, the marine biologist, while Rex mm-hmm. is out taking samples of nature. Uh, he creeps on a woman who's painting beside the lake. He uh, creeps on a family while they're fishing, and then he ambushes them, sort of flips over their boat, and uh, I think kills the dude. And I think the dude who was fishing was one of the scientists who doubted him. Yep, yep, that that seems okay. to be the case. Though right. the, one of the problems is that we get less and less narration from Leopold as we go. Yes. And I don't know if that's by design, like he's becoming less and less human, so there's less uh-huh. of that voice in there, or if they just ran out of time, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but we're increasingly on our own to figure out what he's doing and why he's doing it, and, and even if he's doing something successful. Yeah, and so at some point, he, uh, Leopold attacks another one of the scientists who doubted him, but he attacks him in his house, not in the yep. water. And I was just noticing at this point, like, wait a minute, does Leopold even really have any catfish powers? I mean, I guess you were sort of alluding to that a minute ago, but like this murder could have just been done by a big human. He just uh, attacks a guy in his house and chokes him, I think. 
Yeah, the only possible answer I can think of there is that human Leopold does look kind of shambly and puny. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if he could have pulled this off. So I guess arguably monster form is better. Okay. Uh, but also at some point here, uh, evidence starts mounting that something weird is going on with pollution in the water and the Leopold attacks and Rex is on the case. Rex starts putting the pieces together. At uh, one point, he's out collecting data with a net and Leopold is swimming in the water underneath his boat and he tears up the net. And Leopold's like, nets are harmful to fish. We will use them for humans if any survive. Yeah, it's like, let's not get ahead of ourselves, Leopold. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But Rex ends up summoning these uh, people we talked about before, the INPIT agents. INPIT, I think, is an acronym. I don't know what it stands for. I tried to look it up, and there is something called INPIT, but I don't think it is what is being referenced here. So I, I really don't know what it is. Rob, what would you say is the deal with them? International Nature Police Information Technologies? I'm not sure. Uh, okay. I guess they're kind of like, they feel like they've arrived from a, a TV show. Like there's yes. a TV show yeah. where they investigate strange nature happenings. They have their own van. They have jumpsuits, by God. It's like the and, A-team is here. Yeah, they're the professionals. They're here to to get stuff done. But it does it does feel like they're coming from an entirely different television show. And in, in, in indeed, they may feel like this if you're watching it unriffed for the first time, because a lot of the in pit stuff was cut from the Bloodwaters of Doctor Z um, uh, uh, edition on MST3K. Ah, uh, okay. Now, they, yeah, they arrive in this big camper like. RV, basically, and mm-hmm. they are dressed in these red uniform jumpsuits. So they look kind of like they stepped out of Flash Gordon or something. Yeah. And they compare notes with Rex and they talk about all the pollution he's found and how this might be affecting the mutant marine life attacks. And uh, and so they, they start putting the pieces together along with Rex. Now, we mentioned that, unfortunately, Leopold gets uh, distracted from his uh, transform everybody into fish. Well, I don't know if that's what he's ultimately his whatever it is he's doing. He gets distracted by deciding that he he must make a bride of catfish. Mm -hmm. Um, So he goes back to the lady who's painting by the lake who's still there. It seems like maybe days later. And he kidnaps her and takes her back to the lab to turn her into bride of catfish. And it doesn't work. Yeah, it is. um a lonesome and disastrous uh, episode in the uh, ascent of Dr. Leopold here, uh, where yeah, she dies half transformed, still in the uh, the baptism cage thing, and uh, and then afterwards he has to get rid of her body. And this is another this is another sequence that was cut from the MST version. Uh, what does he do to get rid of her body? Does he feed her to fishes or anything like that? Nope, he dissolves her in a big old vat of Hollywood acid. Ah, our old friend. Yep. It's a great sequence. All while we have some like weird, you know, the weird uh, Tamil electronic music going on in the background. And we see him test the acid on a fish. He dips a fish in the acid and it eats away half of it. This film is not concerned with wasting anybody's time. They're, they're, no. uh, we're going we're gonna to do some, an acid scene and we're going to spend about 15 minutes doing it. We've we got to make sure that our catfish monster is doing quality assurance on his acid. Yeah. Um, so we see Rex and the in-pit agents uh, set up traps for the monster. I guess at this point they suspect there's a giant catfish monster somehow. And they, they set up traps and then they chill in a camper. And this part also reminded me of Boggy Creek 2 and The Legend Continues, where they will set up traps in the woods and then chill in an RV. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but eventually the catfish monster attacks them and they somehow scare it away. I think with a camera flash, uh, yep. and they end up getting photos of it. And it's a really good photo. If yeah. this is another p- p- place where that, I mean, uh, Dr. Leopold is just really messing up. Like, oh my yeah. goodness. Now you're, you've come, you've been com- completely photographed and it's crystal clear. Yeah. Yeah. So they get perfectly good photos of him. Uh, and uh, there's one part somewhere in here where Leopold is, I think, sad and defeated, and he goes back to his lab, and you see that he is sad, I think, about the fact that he failed to successfully uh, turn the woman he kidnapped into into Bride of Catfish. And so he starts drawing her, but the picture he draws of her does not look like the woman that he kidnapped. It looks like Elvira. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he was supposed to be drawing somebody else. I don't, did he have like a long lost love? Is that implied in the movie? I don't think that's even implied. Uh, yeah, but, okay. but, but, you know, we're left to figure out a lot of this on our own. So maybe it is, or maybe he just was like, this is my, this was my one shot at romantic happiness and the kidnapping and forced transformation did not work. So I've got to do this alone. Oh, maybe it was Elvira, or I guess at this time it would, maybe it was Vampira. He was Maybe like, so. "Oh, Vampira! Yes, she could have. She could have been my companion in the fish world, but, but alas." At any rate, the ex- the the main experiment continues. Right. So Rex and the inpit agents they end up making the connection to Leopold. Uh, one of the inpit agents, I guess, Agent Walsh, she figures out that Leopold. Uh, was working on a lab that was conducting secret experiments with heavy water, and he is attacking his former co-workers from the lab he worked at. And so they ask the sheriff to check on those researchers. And uh, then, then, so I guess they're doing that, but then we spend a long time with the monster going out for a walk, just mm-hmm. uh, wandering around the streets at night. His posture as he walks, you've, you've mentioned that his posture is awkward and it really, it's amusing in a way that's difficult to describe. It's kind of like a drunk guy trying to walk through the sand in flip flops, you know, where it's like hard to get solid footing and you got things coming off your feet. So it's that kind of walk. Um, but another thing about this movie is that it does not follow the Jaws rule. You know, the, the rule that you should not show too much of your monster until the final act. This movie, the monster is on screen constantly, <laughs> yeah. full view, bright lights. You see the whole thing for minutes at a time. It's just Alf Greedo, uh, front and center, wandering through the empty streets at night. Uh, you see him break into a drugstore to get some kind of medicine. He smashes a bunch of stuff, I think, because Oh, yeah, he's that's upset. because he's – yeah. well, he's um, he becomes injured at one point. So – so, so not only does the experiment yeah. seem to be failing, he becomes perhaps mortally wounded uh, or at least like heavily wounded to where he's having to break into a pharmacy and wreck the place and mm-hmm. steal some drugs. And so like the, the whole plan seems to just be going completely off the rails at this point. Now, one of my favorite scenes, and this one, I, I laughed out loud at this one. Uh, this is a scene that uh, that was cut from the MST treatment of the film, uh, and it's ultimately a loss because it's hilarious. There could have probably been a lot of fun riffing on this one, but it, it's it's what I think of as the hippie parade. So the sheriff here, he goes to check on folks in town and finds the youth enjoying a little folk music, uh, clearly in like some sort of abandoned building. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're hanging out with none other than the, the actual real-life Jamie DeFreitz, uh, who is performing a song, the B-side to World War II boy, Running Don't Make You Free. (laughs) 
And so, uh, anyway, the sheriff, you know, he comes in during the midst of this. He sits down and he listens for a spell, you know, perhaps proving that he can hang, you know. And yeah, then he looks he, like he's enjoying the music. Yeah, he looks like he's enjoying it. It's like, yeah, this is good. I can, I, I'm, I'm seeing eye to eye with the young folk now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but well, it, quickly, another thing that made me laugh in the scene is that for just a moment, Leopold arrives and is watching through the window, the monster. And he's <laughs> also ambiguously kind of grooving, but then he just moves on. It's almost like it was meant to be a music video for this song you know yeah uh because again uh this, these songs are featured in their entirety nothing is cut yeah um so the sheriff he, you know he enjoys it for a bit but he's there with a purpose he has to he has to protect these hippies so the sheriff uh you know gets up and leads the hippies all mid-song on a police escorted parade through town with uh, with uh, with Jamie DeFreitz playing the guitar the whole time and singing, and they, so they they have this procession through the small Florida town, and then right into the the sheriff's uh, um, uh, office, and then right into a jail cell. <laughs> and um, it it's then explained that this is to keep them safe, and that the hippies seem okay with it. But it's not clear for a moment, and it I found it kind of perversely humorous. It's like oh, yeah. he he the, you know the old sheriff. You think he's uh, he's you know seeing eye to eye with the young folk, and he's looking after them. No. He's just arresting all of them. Yeah. Um, so but they, they uh, don't scene. seem bothered by it. Like they, they, they all just go into the jail cell and they're just like, cool, man. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. And they're locked up and you never see them in the film again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of the rest of the movie is just Leopold stalking around, looking at things and menacing people. And then Rex and the in-pit agents trying to track him down. They're on his trail at this point and they're they're trying to find him but at one point leopold a lot of what leopold does is like look through the windows at people and spy on them Mm -hmm. and at one point he observes the two in-pit agents kissing he spies on them through a window and i guess he gets jealous so he decides at this point to kidnap agent walsh uh, one of the two in-pit agents and create another bride of catfish bride of catfish 2.0 Right. Uh, so again, really veering off schedule here with the with with the whole plan because he's again heavily injured at this point, having to self medicate with stolen uh, pharmacy drugs. But then he's like, "I'm gonna I'm gonna try it again. I'm gonna try and transform this woman who is hunting me into my bride." Yes. Uh, so he kidnaps her from her house, takes her back to the lab, and then and then Rex Walker and the cops. Uh, Walker is the other inpit agent. They they figure out what's going on and they're chasing the monster down and they, they split up to chase him and the other in pit agent Walker uses this hilarious looking amphibious vehicle that looks kind of mm-hmm. like a power wheel. It's very small. It's very cool. I, I assume from the non-existent in pit television series that I'm imagining in my head. Yeah, and and coming up is a scene where you see this in pit agent sort of wading through a swamp and he gets bitten by a snake. And this is another one of those IMDb trivia claims. It claims that the snake bite was not scripted. It was just some the, the guy actually got bitten by a snake while they were filming the scene, and they just left it in the movie. Well, I, it, it's I don't know. I I feel doubtful, but it looks kind of real. It looks it looks realistic and and but I also really like the way it, it plays into the ending of the picture. Uh, yes. So so yeah, for a bit here we have this kind of double chase uh, where 
uh, where one agent is trying to chase down the monster, and then we have Rex, the marine biologist, um, and the sheriff. Uh, they they are going to check out the uh, the laboratory to see what's up, see what old Doc Leopold was up to, and then and then of course we also have Agent Walsh who has been kidnapped. Right. So they go to the monster's lair. The sheriff fights the monster and loses and is strangled. So bye mm-hmm. bye, bye sheriff. And then Rex, he comes across Leopold's notes, and he, I think, wants to understand them so he can understand what was going on here. You, you wonder if it's like that scene in the movie where, where one scientist uh, discovers what the mad scientist is doing, like the good scientist is momentarily tempted. It's the last temptation of the good scientist, and it's like, oh, it's, it's genius. <laughs> yeah, um, but of course, Zat shows up. And, uh, and and violence ensues. He he ultimately tries to save Agent Walsh, and I guess to a certain degree succeeds because what Zat tries to do is he puts her in the cage as well. He he first he injects her with the green stuff, uh, yeah. and then he's going to lower her into the Zat baptismal font. Um, but Rex disrupts that, and then Rex is injured, possibly killed by the monster, and the it's monster runs off. Yeah, yeah it's, so I wonder, um, do all the main characters die? Because we have this chase at the end where Rex tries to save Walsh. You see him get injured and then fall down, but I guess you never see him after that. A similar thing happens to the other in-pit agent. He sort of gets injured and falls down, and at the end of the movie, I think we see him not moving, but it's not clear if he's dead or alive. And you think, well, at least Agent Walsh has been saved. Uh, she did not get uh, turned into a catfish, but something bad happened to her. I don't know exactly what it is. She is not upgraded to fish level, but she is sort of turned into a zombie human. Yeah. So I think she got half the treatment, right? She's injected with the, with the Zat, but then she's not actually lowered into the Zat baptismal font to transform her body. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, the, the ending of this film, I think, is is actually pretty effective. It's it's haunting uh, and kind of pitch perfect. Because mm-hmm. uh, throughout the whole film, we've watched Leopold stumble awkwardly around, his grandiose dreams and voiceover, so mismatched with his new body, his actual abilities, his focus, his mixed results. Uh, but in the end, against all odds... He achieves his goal for the most part. He he want, he str- struggles and s- stumbles into the ocean with his Zat formula, like two tanks of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, meanwhile, one of the the, the the male agent that was snake bit is like is shooting at him with a rifle and seems to at least wing him, possibly kill him. But he gets that Zat into the ocean, and then meanwhile, even though he's unable to completely transform agent walsh into his uh, catfish princess she does she wakes in this zombified state she she wanders out onto the beach and the other agent tries to call to her. he's like oh thank goodness you're all right but she just wanders into the water yep. uh, just just like a like a zombie and yeah we're left to piece this together because then we, we kind of zoom out and some haunting music plays uh so we just don't know like did she is she an, uh, is she transformed enough that she'll survive in the water, or is she about to drown? Um, did enough zat get into the ocean to bring about this new age of giant fish and bring down humanity? Um, I don't know, but it seems like that might be the case. So it seems like, uh, d- you know, despite everything, Dr. Leopold has won. Yeah, I, I think the implication is that all the human characters die, and he succeeds in throwing his formula into the ocean to create a race of atomic superfish that will conquer the world. Yeah. 
It's it's quite an ending. Uh, it it ends on a really good note where you where you kind of forget some of the the awkwardness and weirdness and mismatched uh, tonal choices. Now, another one of the many claims about this movie online is that uh, apparently the movie was originally supposed to end with, or at least include. I think this would be at the ending giant fish attacks like a giant catfish <laughs> that was like rampaging around and destroying the town and uh and apparently they filmed some versions of this i think with miniature models of the town but then they realized oh this does not look good so they cut that part out of the movie but one shot from the sequence allegedly made it into the film it which did is, yeah which is where a, a catfish like a little catfish is squirming next to a fence Yes, I, I, I saw this when I did my recent uh, viewing of, of Zat Uncut. And, and yeah, like suddenly there's this brief sequence that looks like, like poor effects test footage of a walking catfish flopping around on a model of, uh, of like a, some landscape. Uh, so, yeah, I, that seems to match up with what we're seeing here. But there's no context for it. Uh, it when it actually shows up in the film, you're just kind of like, what? What was that? So I guess we mentioned the fact that when uh, Dr. Leopold first transforms and looks at himself in a mirror, he says, ah, nothing like a catfish, but it's beautiful. And I wonder, was it intended that he would look nothing like a catfish, even though he is half man, half catfish? Or did they just get whatever costume they could get? And then they're like, oh, we better add a line in here sort of acknowledging that this doesn't <laughs> look like a catfish. Yeah, maybe that's how it went down. Or maybe that's what they told themselves. You know, they're like, no, this isn't quite what we went for, but it is beautiful. Let's devote oodles of, of screen time to it. So weirdly, this is not the only killer catfish movie uh, that I've ever seen. I, oh, yeah? It's been many years now, so I don't, I've forgotten a lot of the details about it. But I'm pretty sure that I watched a killer catfish movie about six or seven years ago called Beneath. That's about people trapped on a boat who are being stalked on a lake by a killer catfish. And I recall it having a, a really good subtle sense of humor. I think it might've been a Larry Fessenden movie. Uh, but Oh it, yeah. I just looked it up and it, and it is Larry Fessenden uh, is a, quite a filmmaker. He's made some very interesting uh, genre pictures. The main moment of this movie that stuck with me is that there's one point where I, I think one of them has just been attacked by a catfish and the people remaining alive on the boat. Uh, one of them gets up and yells in the direction of the catfish. What do you want from us? <laughs> well, clearly it's muck. They're here for the muck. That's yeah. what catfish want. Yeah. Why would catfish want to eat humans? Aren't they, <laughs> aren't they just sort of like suck up mud and I don't know. I should have looked up something about a uh, catfish feeding behaviors before I opened my <laughs> mouth on that, but. But it's not a sequel to that. Uh, not that I can tell. Okay. <laughs> no, it's just like, it, it doesn't look anything like the Greedo Elf. It is just a gigantic googly-eyed catfish. <laughs> well, in the end, Zat, there's, there's nothing else quite like it. It is, uh, it is quite an impressive film. All the, everything in it comes together awkwardly, but kind of perfectly. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's like, it, it, it's, it's the monster itself as film. Now, you might be wondering, where can I watch Zat? Well, Zat has been out on DVD and Blu-ray for years, but it sadly looks like it's out of stock everywhere uh, at this moment as we're recording this. Uh, hopefully that'll change in the future. It's also been available, I think, on Amazon Prime in the recent past, but it's not there right now. But you can watch the MST version 
Bloodwaters of Dr. Z, uh, you can digitally obtain that most places, uh, including Amazon Prime. Uh, for, for our copy, again, we rented our copy from Atlanta's own Videodrome. And if you're in Atlanta, you can go there and rent uh, various DVDs and Blu-rays uh, or buy some cool merch. And you can also check them out online at videodrome.tv. And you can buy stuff and they'll ship it to you, which is pretty cool. They should make Dr. Leopold head motorcycle helmets. So, you know, it's the, it's the Zat <laughs> monster, but it goes on for the bike ride. In fact, you can oh, do the yeah. whole thing, like the leather jacket is a Zat jacket. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, speaking of that, because that sounds like exactly the kind of thing that our land would potentially do. Mm-hmm. If you're listening to this and you don't know the art of our land, you can go to ourlandart.com and uh, you can check out some of the stuff that he creates. All right. So there you have it. Um, that's episode two in, our, in, in what may be a Florida movie trilogy. We'll see. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure if we'll be back next week with another Florida movie or the week after that. It kind of depends on, on Joe's tolerance for all the Florida-ness uh, of, these, of these motion pictures. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm generally game. All right, we'll see. But, you know, sometimes it's nice to have a, a palate cleanser sometimes between films. So I don't know. We'll, we'll see. We'll figure it out. In the meantime, if you'd like to check out other episodes of Weird House Cinema, we publish this every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We're primarily a science podcast, uh, and so our, our primary episodes on scientific topics like the sargassum seaweed, uh, the organism and the, the environment, uh, those publish on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We publish listener mail on Mondays, and the listener mail covers like everything, Weird House Cinema, but also stuff to blow your mind. And then on Wednesdays, we uh, publish The Artifact, a short-form uh, bit about uh, particular uh, artifacts and moments in time, etc. So check all that out. Wherever you get your podcasts, you can find us, and we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe if uh, the website allows you to do that. Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 